We'll spend the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show exploring the details of an interesting report that has just been released by the Environmental Integrity Project. And uh, it's titled The Aluminum Paradox. Aluminum is something that has a, a very uh, important role in a, a lot of, of groundbreaking work uh, to make our planet a cleaner place. So, for instance, when, uh, when solar panels are constructed, typically aluminum is a major component. Wind turbines, more efficient cars and other vehicles. But aluminum brings, in a sense, its own price tag, its own cost, its own environmental cost. And that is at the heart and soul of this uh, report, which was uh, authored primarily by my morning show guest, Nadia Steinzor, a policy and research analyst with the Environmental Integrity Project. And uh, in this report, they try to spell out some of the problems with aluminum and also try to... uh, point the way to some reforms that might uh, improve the situation. We have Nadia Steinzor with us uh, to uh, offer some further explanation about this report. Nadia Steinzor, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much, Craig. It's great to be with you and have a chance to talk to folks in Wisconsin. And thank you for that very kind intro about the report. And yes, indeed, we are exploring the aluminum paradox that we're currently in nationally and the Environmental Integrity Project has also laid out some really clear pathways to make sure that the production of aluminum is cleaner and healthier and then can play an even stronger role in a clean economy. Before we get to the report, tell us more about the Environmental Integrity Project. Uh, I know you are a nonpartisan, nonprofit watchdog organization. Tell us uh, when you were formed, under what sort of uh, situations, and and uh, the kind of things that you have uh, have examined and explored. Sure, the Integrity Environmental Integrity Project um, is a nonprofit organization um, based in Washington and Texas, as a matter of fact, and it is, as you say, a watchdog group. Um, it was formed actually by a lot of um, former environmental. Uh, protection agency staff who were interested in seeing um, stronger enforcement of the nation's laws that were really developed to protect the health and well-being of communities. Um, And there are really, you know, a few goals that the Environmental Integrity Project has. One is to really hold um, federal and state agencies and corporations accountable for the pollution that they cause and for failing to comply with the law. And also to really encourage local communities to get to seek those protections. And as uh, this report and many other reports on different industries that EIP has done show, um, we are also very interested in just illustrating through credible information, objective facts um, about the impacts of the failure to enforce and the impact of different industries that are part of our lives. It's really intriguing to think about uh, former employees of the Environmental Protection Agency being part of the Environmental Integrity Project. I mean, and it's just interesting to think about, first of all, the the, the interest, of course, in these concerns that they would bring, but also a certain kind of expertise and and, uh, experience when it comes to some of these uh, complicated matters. 
Yes, um, it was founded, you know, over 20 years ago um, by a former EPA official uh, who worked in enforcement. And as you say, you know, he, Eric Schaefer, and the whole staff of EIP really bring tremendous talent and understanding of the complexities of environmental laws and their enforcement um, to protect uh, the health and well-being of communities and our environment and our climate. So there's there's a great deal of expertise on both the, the legal and the um, research front at EIP, and I'm really proud to be part of it through this report. We're speaking with Nadia Steinzor. She is a policy and research analyst with the Environmental Integrity Project and lead author for uh, a report called The Aluminum Paradox. Uh, so before we talk about kind of the problem with aluminum uh, and the paradox that those problems present, um, maybe we can start even more basically with that and just uh, talk a little bit about what aluminum is and uh, and in particular how we get aluminum or, or the or the the the, uh, the product that we that we call aluminum and which gets used in so many ways. Uh, so just start with uh, if you would aluminum 101. Uh, give us the <laughs> basics on on what this what this material is and uh, and maybe its primary uses. Sure. Um, well, I would say that if you just look around, probably where you're sitting, if folks are in their homes or even in their cars, just look around and you'll actually see aluminum everywhere, whether it's, you know, as small as the beverage can in your hands or on your desk, um, all the way up. I've got a water bottle here that's made out of partly aluminum, all the way up to the car in your driveway and the appliances in your kitchen. Aluminum plays a very central role in our lives. Oh, our laptops, of course, the phone I'm talking to you on. So aluminum it is an incredible, lightweight, durable, very flexible metal that can be used in a lot of different applications. It can be alloyed with other metals, and it is very recyclable. Um, if handled properly and processed properly, it can be used over and over and over again. Um, so it's really an, an amazing metal. Um, so we're pretty excited about its uh, prospects to play a bigger role in clean energy, in solar panels. It's a big part of solar panels, wind turbines, and uh, are, is being used more and more in electric vehicles to sort of offset the weight of the batteries because it's so lightweight. Mm. So there's a really big role to play. Um, but, the you know, the issue that we have, and getting back to your question about 101, is that you can just imagine how much energy, water, chemicals, and um, and land it takes to go from a rock that's mined out of the earth um, in many different countries around the world, and to take the minerals that are you know locked up in that rock and then to convert it into a powder that can then be converted into a metal. And it's all along the way that they're just all of these substances and all of these processes and big facilities like aluminum smelters and refineries that end up um, causing a lot of pollution for people. By the way, how long has aluminum been around? Uh, do you happen to know, even roughly? Uh, uh, well, there's evidence, um, you know, stories, art, anecdotes going back hundreds of years about the use of aluminum and that aluminum was even, you know, used by some emperors and kings as kind of a precious metal. Wow. And uh, courts that used it for their fanciest uh, dinners, you know, to have it as, as um, silverware and plates. It goes back a long time. But at different points in history, um, aluminum's fortunes have really taken off. 
And that would be, you know, around the dawn of aviation, the development of the automobile, and during the World War, you know, the different world wars, um, because it's used a lot in military equipment. Um, but, you know, the process I just described of going from a rock in which aluminum is in a mineral form all the way to the beverage can on your desk or the door in your car, that process really took off in the 1880s when industrial scale um, development and production methods were developed. And so those methods that were developed in the 1880s are still the essential backbone of the industry today to, to create new, new aluminum. And they are the processes of converting this powder that's called alumina into metal and also to um, turn the bauxite ore into the alumina powder. So those methods were developed in the 1880s, and since then it's really taken off. Um, we saw another surge, you know, in the dawn of, of modern life with all of our appliances and everybody driving everywhere. And now we're seeing another surge in demand um, as we, you know, look to forming a cleaner economy because of climate change and because of all the problems that we're facing. So it's kind of ebbed and flowed over time, but it's really since the 1880s that it's taken off on a very large scale. Hmm. So in your report where you spell out uh, kind of the environmental and health impacts of aluminum, and, and maybe we should say the creation of aluminum, I mean, a piece of aluminum just sitting there is not causing any uh, trouble right. to the environment, but it's it's how we get there from uh, from the th- through through every step of the process. Uh, that's really where the problem is, and and your report cites environmental impact in all four of those major facets, starting with the mining of this thing called bauxite, uh, which comes out of the ground and eventually becomes aluminum. What's going on in that mining phase that is of concern to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So mining, you know, of anything causes problems because you're basically, you know, stripping away land, whether it's, um, you know, forest or farmland or anything else and digging stuff up from underground. Um, The bauxite ore contains uh, alumina in its mineral, aluminum in its mineral form, but it also has other heavy metals and such. But the, the real problem comes from the loss of the farmland and then the creation of a lot of waste product and dust. So you have communities in Guinea and Jamaica is the major supplier to the U.S. So there are mines in Jamaica, and we cover those and cover that in the report. That you know where people are really having a lot of trouble with their respiratory health because of the dust and the waste products are getting into their waterways, which is also causing problems. Um, and so there's a big loss of livelihood and health. Um, in the communities where the mines um, where the mines exist, and in Australia, for example, which is the world's largest producer currently of bauxite, um, there's a tremendous loss of, of forest land and documented um, declines in bird populations. There are more trees that are stripped in the in the bauxite mining areas of Australia for the mines than even for logging. So it's it's pretty shocking what happens to the landscape and what also happens to the surrounding communities, and they're just kind of coated in this red dust. Um, and then there's a lot of waste that's left behind because what's then shipped to refineries to be turned into alumina powder is after the rock's already been ground down. And so there's just a lot of sort of debris and waste products that are just left behind. And 
can really threaten uh, land and water. Hmm. Once we have the bauxite, then uh, it becomes crushed into this white powder that is called alumina. So we're getting mm-hmm. closer to this thing called aluminum. What are the hazards? <laughs> what are the hazards of of this particular phase? Yes, that's a great question. This particular phase has to be done in these very large industrial facilities or refineries, um, and there is one still left in the United States in Gramercy, Louisiana, and it's almost a, a sister um, sister industry to the mine in northern Jamaica that supplies the bauxite to it. So the bauxite comes, and it has to be reduced and crushed further, and there's a lot of chemicals and water that go into that process as well as energy. And through a whole variety of, of these chemical processes, it then comes down to this very fine powder that's, uh, you know, almost like sand or cornstarch or something that's that pure and that um, small. And that's the powder that's then turned into molten metal. And the biggest um most obvious impact from the alumina refineries is the creation of something called red mud. And that's just these vast heaps of waste product that um, are, is also red just like the bauxite is and can really uh, cover cars and homes and cause a lot of respiratory problems for people. Um, the other issue is that there can be quite a lot of mercury discharged um, from alumina refineries and that's causing problems in Louisiana and the waterways, as well as just posing a real health risk to the surrounding communities. Mm-hmm. That, that's the biggest concern. And the storage of red mud, I mean, there's just billions of tons of it all over the world, just kind of sitting at either old alumina refineries or current ones, like the one in Louisiana. And there's actually another one that's been closed down, but there's just acres and acres of this stuff um, just sitting there and waiting, um, you know, for proper closure and disposal. Mm. And it's one of those uh, problems that if we are oblivious to it, it uh, it can grow to an extent where it's going to be really hard, even harder to deal with. Um, exactly. You kind of there's definitely been no uh, nipping the problem in the bud. Quite the contrary, it's just been allowed to accumulate and accumulate, and if mismanaged and not covered properly, can really leak into waterways and and blow all over people and communities. Right. And that refinery in Gramercy, Louisiana, is in an area called Cancer Alley because they have so many petrochemical facilities and oil refineries and other kinds of industrial operations that the people there are already under tremendous pressure. So we were um, very sad and disheartened to see that the alumina refinery is actually part of that whole complex. It's not, you know, the only cause of the problems, but it's definitely part of the mix. Hmm. I think in some ways the most complicated of the four processes uh, for us to understand is the creation of something called Petroleum coke or pet coke. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. Why does this happen? Really, I mean, why yeah. does this have to be done? And, and then what is the problem with it being done? Yes, I'm really glad you bring that up because that's a part of alumina, of the aluminum process that's really not talked about much because it is a feedstock. Um, and EIP got really interested in this question because it's actually been um, pursuing a case um, that's based on the civil rights of a community in Port Arthur, Texas, um, that lives next to a calcining plant, which is a refinery, 
where this petroleum coke is created, um, and it's an it's called the Oxbow Port Arthur um, Kelsiner. And um, the plant there, the real problem with it is it's taking petroleum coke, which is a distilled product from oil refining, and refining it even further so that by the end it's almost 100% carbon. And but embedded in it is also a lot of sulfur. So it's it's all carbon with a bunch of sulfur mixed in. And when that petroleum coke is produced and also when it is released in the process of creating aluminum, it um, it releases a tremendous amount of sulfur dioxide, which has a lot of health problems, respiratory, cardiovascular problems. Um, it can really be a, take a toll on the surrounding communities. And this plant in Port Arthur, as well as the other dozen or so around the country that create this calcined or highly refined petroleum coke, are causing a tremendous amount of, of problems for people. And the reason it's used is the feedstock, which is also why it's somewhat overlooked in the process. And it is a, the, the primary ingredient in the devices that are needed to smelt or create the aluminum. So they're called anodes. They conduct electricity. And those, it's those devices that have a lot of um, pet coke in them. And there, there's a new technology that we hope will come on the market that Alcoa and a couple of other companies have been developing for decades. Now they're saying we're on the verge of having them. And it's a different kind of device. It's a different kind of anode that would not have pet coke in it. And it would be carbon and um, sulfur-free. So if, they, if the industry would really seize on that technology and that opportunity and adopt it, we could do away with a lot of the sulfur dioxide problems. Hmm. But in the meantime, you've got these um, pet coke refineries that are just really highly polluting. Right. And this all ends with the process of smelting alumina to convert it into metal where it can actually be used. And it sounds like that process as well is problematic. Yes. there. Are, um, so the U.S., as of about 25 years ago, had 23 smelters around the country. Today, primarily because of globalization and just um, the high cost of electricity and operating and not kind of keeping up with modern technology, the there are now only six operating smelters in the U.S. And those six continue to pollute. They're very old. The youngest one was built in 1980, um, but they go all the oldest one is one in New York that was built in, in a 1902. So, you know, they go back a really long way, and they've certainly been updated and retrofitted over time to some degree, but they're essentially really old facilities, and they are not complying with the law. There are many, many uh, water and air violations occurring all the time. And we're really concerned that, you know, on the brink of a surge in the clean economy and with all of this tremendous opportunity to grow aluminum and to grow American jobs and to really see a surge in manufacturing, that the operators of these facilities have to clean up their act and really do a better job of reining in the pollution at smelters. Now, you know, I will say a big part of the puzzle, and that gets back to the paradox, too, is the need for more clean energy to power these smelters. Um, by our estimates, about 70% of the greenhouse gases coming out of the smelters is due to the electro electricity. And five of the six smelters in the U.S. Um, still run on coal plants or some oil and gas power. 
um, that they get from the grids, but they don't run on clean energy, and that really needs to change. That's that's our number one recommendation, actually, is that if the states where these smelters are located could make a shift over time, we don't expect it to happen overnight, but if they could make a shift over time to cleaner energy, that would go a very long way to reducing um, emissions. In the time that remains to us, uh, what would be at least a couple of your other uh, recommendations for uh, for confronting this this aluminum paradox? Yeah, so I've, I've mentioned the clean energy uh, shift for the smelters, and we've talked about um, you know the need to change over to more modern technologies for production. And I would add to that, and this I hope would be of uh, interest to your listeners because there's a lot of what are called secondary production or rolling and forming mills uh, for aluminum in Wisconsin and many other states. And we really see tremendous promise in that industry. Um, There's a lot of investment going that way. The U.S. is the second largest producer of that type of metal, which is essentially uh, made from scrap metal and recycled metal. And if we all did a really better job of recycling and if industries like the automotive industry or the solar panel industry did a, does a really excellent job going forward of stripping out the aluminum um, from used, um, used products and then remelting it, it could continue to create a lot of jobs and really um, help put a big dent in the amount of new aluminum that we need. So that's a big recommendation, too, to just really do a much better job in that direction to try to offset as much of this new aluminum from bauxite that we can. Um, and then we need updated um, rules. We need updated rules that are, you know, in the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And we hope that the EPA will take a hard look at the rules that are now decades old and update them to encourage the industry um, to modernize. And, you know, finally, there's all of this this, these incentives come in now through the Inflation Reduction Act and some tax credits, and we really hope that aluminum companies will seize on those and take the opportunity um, to modernize and do a better job and clean up um, so that they can be part of the clean energy economy going forward. If somebody listening wants to uh, read this report for themselves, they dig into it a little deeper, uh, is it available to the general public? Yes, it absolutely is, and we really hope people will read it. There's about a, there's a, a several-page summary, which is kind of fun to read. It's got some graphics right at the front if you don't want to read an entire report, and it is called The Aluminum Paradox. It's available on the Environmental Integrity Project's website, which is environmentalintegrity.org. So just go to type in environmentalintegrity.org, and it will be there. Um, the Aluminum Paradox, and we really hope people will read it and enjoy it and find it useful. There's a lot of resources in there, too, to just learn more about um, the role and the benefits of aluminum, as well as what we can do to make it even cleaner going forward. Nadia Steinzor, the lead author of this report called The Aluminum Paradox, uh, a policy and research analyst with the Environmental Integrity Project. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for your good work on this important issue and best wishes. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me and for your interest in the topic. Have a great day and good day to all your listeners.